Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and dearest of all listeners, to the DOGS program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. And we've been around for a while. If this is your first listening, we are one of the old school 3CR programs. This gets really, really detailed and a bit political because we're going to be talking today about one of the things you never talk about at dinner parties. We're going to talk about religion, yes. Sex, religion, and politics, we do two of those three on a regular basis. I'll leave it up to you to guess which two. But today we're doing religion. In fact, there's this thing called a religious discrimination William. I mean, a religious discrimination bill, I should say. And Jean's got something to say about that in her 807th press release. That's how long we've been on air. That's one a week for 807 weeks. You can count back. But if you do count back, you get to the 80s. That's how long we've been around. But truth to tell, it's actually a little bit scary, and Jean's going to outline why, because when re- when churches and religions start demanding their stuff um, from the government, they really should be very careful what they wish for. Um, religious discrimination is an issue in education because around about 30 to 40% of schools in Australia demand religious exemptions to teach kids. Um, they are religious schools. They're Catholic schools, they're Anglican schools, they're exclusive brethren schools, they're Scientology schools. Everyone's got a finger in the pie, and they're all government-funded in Australia, which is something we think is a rubbish idea, and we're going to put a stop to it. It's taken us a while, but I'm pretty sure we'll get there in the end, um, because we think every school that's funded by the government should be free, at point of use, should be open to all students, irrespective of what religious beliefs their parents or they hold. Um, All schools should be open to all, free of religious discrimination. And, of course, from our point of view something that does not discriminate, which is in fact what a religious discrimination bill is all about. Uh, We'll also be talking about schools in Canberra in detail, because in Canberra they're doing interesting things when it comes to splitting up the funding and making sure that all the nice private schools get their money, as they do here in Victoria as well. And we'll be talking about that wonderful thing called the NAPLAN, which is uh, this strange standardised testing we have. But um, other things as well, and of course we're finishing with our great state school. But without further ado because adieus are what we do at the end. Without further ado, let's go to Jean's 807th press release. Jean, can you tell us all about the religious discrimination bill from the point of view of the dogs? Certainly. But just one, one small point. We've been here since 1987 on 3CR, but the dogs have been around since the early 1960s, 1964 to be exact. Press release 807, which is on our website at www.adogs.info. 
Religious Discrimination Bill Churches Should Be Careful What They Wish For Dogs are in broad agreement with the following press release, which I'll read in a moment, from the Rationalist Association of New South Wales, who've been around since 1912. But before 1912, you had the 1901 Federation and the Australian Constitution. And although the Founding Fathers placed Section 116 in the Constitution, and this is a very strong Freedom of Religion clause, unfortunately, this was read down and out by the Barwick High Court in the Dogs Court case of 1981. So, The churches are right to be concerned about religious freedom in Australia because although it's there in section 116, it was read down and out, but it was their own doing because the churches wished to keep their billions of dollars of state aid rather than their religious freedom. They argued for 26 days in a trial of facts in 1979 that they were no more religious than state schools. And then... They argued that the words any religion in section 116 meant a particular religion. And the High Court judges, six of them, with the notable seventh exception of Justice Lionel Murphy, agreed with the church schools. So, in the eyes of the dogs and a lot of other people throughout Australia, the church has lost any semblance of integrity and they made what was in fact a shield for their religious freedom into a sword. The churches in Australia, however, do not wish to revisit section 116, since a proper interpretation of this potential Bill of Rights clause would affect the extraordinary largesse they receive from the taxpayer, billions and billions of dollars, for their educational enterprise alone. By reducing freedom of conscience to a mere piece of discrimination legislation, however, they're setting themselves up for future, a future of sectarian squabbling of dif- as differing religions vie for the right to discriminate against each other and non-believers. Christian churches in particular have forgotten Christ's injunction to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Now, this is the Rationalist Association of New South Wales press release. They say, Religious Discrimination Bill goes to confirm that Australia is a soft theocracy. A theocracy is a state that is ruled by religious people. Religion is integrated into Australian governments at three levels, legally, financially and symbolically. And this makes the constitutional monarchy that is Australia effectively a soft theocracy in these ways. First of all, legally. No high court interpretation of section 116 of the constitution has formally separated government and religion. There are no clauses in state constitutions separating government and religion. Financially, all religions with a supernatural belief are tax-exempt charities. 
Their passive investments and active commercial enterprises are all tax-exempt, effectively subsidised by all taxpayers. That, by the way, includes uh, funeral parlours. Symbolically, a religious figure, the Queen of Australia, is head of state, and a religious mass is undertaken with the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition reading a lesson before the start of a new parliament. Judges annually attend a red mass where they seek religious guidance for their legal decisions in the year ahead, and prayers are said before Parliament commences. The Attorney-General's draft religious discrimination bill, again, symbolically introduced in a synagogue, enhances the entanglement of government and religion detailed above. If it's introduced into law, the bill will help to confirm that Australia is a soft theocracy, where secular discrimination law can be used to privilege religious belief, particularly where it concerns issues the churches define as sinful, like gay marriage, abortion, assisted dying, sexuality outside the perceived norm of heterosexuality. By additionally setting up a religious freedom commissioner while at the same time defining a religious belief bizarrely as, quote, holding a religious belief or not holding a religious belief, the Attorney-General is presenting a bill that is incredible. Only in a soft theocracy such as Australia could a bill like this be introduced in a synagogue and seriously contemplated. The Parliament of Australia should reject the bill. And the dogs would say the High Court should rethink Section 116 and go back to the intentions of the Founding Fathers, particularly Inglis Clark, who knew that if you gave them an inch, the churches would become an imperium in imperio, a state within a state. So there might be a a soft theocracy today, but if one church gains precedence over others, then we will be a hard theocracy. Well, that's enough uh, for that for the moment. We'll have a bit of a break and a bit of music, and then Robert has got quite a lot for you, and so has Dale. She has a lovely story about what's really behind the good things in Australia at the moment. Our experience, the experience of many of us of our little state school where we rub shoulders with everybody, all of our fellow Australians, and we learn to live with them. So that's enough for now.
afternoon and welcome back to the Dogs Program. You're listening to Jean, Dale and Rob on the Dogs this afternoon. And yes, as mentioned before, um, this is Dale here and I've got an article here by Bruce Elder uh, called The Griffith Review, A School Reunion. Cities are socially stratified. The knobs live where the views are best. The workers live in the valleys and the flat wastelands. It is possible to live in a certain part of an Australian city and never meet an Aborigine, a Jew, an immigrant from the Indian subcontinent, a doctor, apart from when visiting surgery, a garbage collector, until he fails to take your garbage away, or a billionaire. This doesn't happen in country towns. While it is true that adults, applying nothing more complex than the birds of a feather principle, will tend to gravitate towards each other out of social, economic, intellectual and intellectual self-interest, country schools are great homes of egalitarianism until at least the end of primary school when some parents send their kids off to city private schools. Growing up in Tumut, at the time a small New South Wales town of 3,000 people sustained by local agriculture and the timber industry, in the late in the 1950s was a model of Australian egalitarianism. Young children are blind to race, wealth and social class. Country towns are small and, consequently, it is common for the wealthy and the poor to live within a few streets of each other. Each afternoon, I'd walk home from school with the sons of the local electrical repairman and the night soil carter, or shit collector, as he was called. In retrospect, I guess I belonged to the upper end of the social spectrum in a very, very small pond. My father was a successful accountant, and as befits a socially responsible member of the local bourgeoisie, he was was honorary treasurer of a dozen community organisations. He was, as the cliché goes, a much-loved bastion of the local community. My mother was the last of a generation of women who never worked outside the family home. We fraternised usually at private tennis courts, on properties around the town, with other professionals and with the kids, with the local landed gentry who, because of the price of, because the price of wool had made them rich, all sent their kids off to King's, PLC, Cranbrook, Asham, Knox and Trinity Grammar. It never occurred to me partly, I suspect, because I've always been naively ignorant about social class and partly because of my father's passion, because my father passionately despised all social pretension, that fraternising with the shit collector's son every afternoon or being entranced by the local bookie's gorgeous daughter was a kind of social egalitarianism by stealth that would have been impossible if I'd grown up in a city. In the classroom and in the playground, we knew no social barriers or boundaries. We never asked or even thought about what our schoolmates' parents did, how much money people had or where people fitted in the social hierarchy. Social status was not part of our language. It played no part in the way we constructed our world. A decade ago, someone stumbled upon the old Tumut public school class rolls. There, in inky copper plate, were our names, addresses and birth dates with neat ticks and crosses to indicate daily attendance. Given the prevailing age regulations, we were all born between February 44 and March 45. 
we were all about to turn 50 and because back in the late 1950s and early 1960s we had left school in a haphazard manner some left at the minimum age to work on family farms or in their dad's businesses most left after the intermediate certificate which was at the end of the third year of high school a small number disappeared to private schools and about a dozen out of a year of of about 80 students stayed on to complete the leaving certificate it was decided that a reunion to celebrate turning 50 made good sense there are school reunions and school reunions this was very very special only in a relatively small country town can a school reunion be held in a group of buildings where the students are experienced where where students experience their kindergarten infants primary and secondary school education the old tomb at public school had seen us all sniffling and clinging to our mothers as we started kindy back in 1949, had seen us move from primary to secondary, that is, to another room across the main hall in 1957, and seen us sit for our intermediate certificate at the end of 1959. It had also seen us caned and humiliated and sent to stand in the corner for minor infractions and demoralised by those inescapable barbarians and sadists masquerading as teachers. Someone had the inspired idea that we should gather at 2.30 in the old school hall for afternoon tea. The locals, who constituted the majority of past students, brought the usual rural fare, sponge cakes, lamington, scone sandwiches, and we all wallowed in a nostalgia made palpable by the fact that all the old schoolrooms were still intact. Do you remember, asked one middle-aged woman of the man we used to call Boothead, he's now the local union representative at at the sawmill, do you remember when the teacher used to leave the room and used to sit down the front and tell us all to shut up or we'd get in trouble? You haven't changed much, have you? I used to sit up the back here in Inky Stevenson's class. And did you sit over there? And what about that old bastard who was deputy principal? He did all the caning. Do you remember Wom? Presumably an abbreviation of Wombat. Oddie's brother getting six and coming out holding his hand not and trying not to cry? Do you remember everyone used to go and stick their hand under the tap after being caned? And what about dot, 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 etc.? There was an easy sense of warm, old-fashioned community. But why? What held us all together after all these years? On one level, we did not really know each other. Most of us had not met for more than 35 years. In many ways, those years between the late teens and 50 are the defining years of a person's life. They are the period when values are really formed and solidified, when marriage or singleness is established, when children are born, when education for future employment takes place, when ladders of success are climbed or left unclimbed, when aspirations are achieved or dashed, when a sense of this is who I am is created and carefully tended and allowed to bloom. And I'll continue with more of this article after this.
And welcome back to the Dogs Program. Uh, we're in the middle of an article called The Griffith Review, A School Reunion by Bruce Elder. This is the Dogs, the Defenders of Government Schools. I'm Dale and I'll continue reading now. Somehow, as we chatted and reminisced, the elements that separate, that separate people in the modern adult world, status, wealth and success, dissolved as people as diverse as wealthy landovers, senior public servants, truck drivers, women who devoted their lives to bringing up children, small business people, shopkeepers, builders and many other occupations met on a common and defining ground. Our lives, or at least a very significant part of them, were contained in those old rooms and that central hall. Everyone felt that there was something unique and important about growing up in a country town after World War II. It was always planned that we would meet again in five years' time. Somehow, that didn't happen. And so, in 2004, when most of us were turning 60, another reunion was organised. There are probably two preconditions for enjoying and participating in a school reunion. You have to feel, by your own measures, that your life has, on balance, been successful and enjoyable. And it helps if you're the kind of person who enjoys, preferably wallows in, your past and the past of those around you. Some people are terrified by school reunions. They feel as though meeting people whom they saw they once saw every day and haven't seen for decades is one of those life tests they just don't want to subject themselves to. If you have a belief that revisiting your past offers an opportunity to hold a mirror, albeit smudged and foggy, up to your own life, then you're probably the kind of person who looks forward to a class reunion with enthusiasm. Invited to MC the dinner, the meal was a typically stodgy country affair, fine cuisine rarely manages to cross the Great Divide, I was keen to use the opportunity to find out a little more about my fellow ex-students. I drew up simple questions about numbers of children's person, personal wealth, travel and family. Nothing too confronting, just a sheet of multiple choice questions that could be filled in in about two minutes. The results were an extraordinary image of the way rural Australia has evolved over the past half century. Of the 80 students who were in my year at the end of primary school, there were 40 who came to the reunion and filled out the form. No one knows exactly why half the class decided not to attend. There were apologetic letters from some explaining that they now lived in Tasmania, that they were heading off on complex overseas assignments, that a holiday in Vietnam had un unfortunately coincided... But equally, there were people still living in the town who, when asked, had said things like, no bloody way, I'm not going to waste my time on that, saw enough of them when I was at school. It was a position I could sympathise with. Like many of my generation, I'd become so disenchanted with Australia, particularly during the long years of conservative rule and the Vietnam War, that when I went to England in the 1970s, I had no real intention of ever returning home. And after seven years in the UK, when I finally did return, I looked upon most Australian culture, particularly the popular culture I was interested in, with both horror and disdain. Australian music... Australian popular music was laugh laughingly derivative. Film and television, with few exceptions, was all but unwatchable. Live theatre was beneath contempt. Levels of public debate were banal and self-serving. Public intellectuals were virtually non-existent. 
But living in a society as a complaining, whinging, misanthropic critic is not only not Australian, it's also against my nature. So, determined to find Australian things that I could love unconditionally, I returned to my childhood. It is easy to love rural Australia, both in the 1950s and today. Sure, there's the dark underbelly of racism, emotional dishonesty, small-town bigotry and unspoken desperation. But there's equally a true sense of community, an uncomplicated generosity of spirit, a sense of belonging and caring. And whenever I have returned to my hometown, which has become increasingly common in recent years, people who I don't even remember have come up to me in the main street and said hello. I've been welcomed warmly, and I have felt that, although I haven't lived in the town for over 40 years, I still belong. My feelings were not unique. Try these numbers for expressions of love for the town and the school. 36 of the 40 said they looked back on the years at Termit Public School with affection. More than half had not pursued any tertiary education, and a quarter had never lived anywhere other than Termit. 25 were worth more than $500,000, and amazingly, the others were millionaires, at least in terms of assets. If someone had asked us back in the 50s whether any of us would become millionaires, millionaires, we would have laughed at the absurdity of it. I don't know about the others, but when I started working in 1962, I was paid £12 or $24 a week, and a million of anything was inconceivable. And we'd been a wonderfully faithful group. 32 had married only once. Six had a second attempt at correcting their first mistake, and two, quite sensibly, had never married. We had not produced the largest family so common in our parents' generation. There was only one family, apart from the blended ones, with more than four children. Four people had only one child, eleven had two, ten had three, seven had four children, and the rest of us had no kids at all. One family won the trifecta of most kids, oldest of seven, oldest child, 42, and most grandchildren, 13. The rest of us could only look on in awe. At the other end of the scale, one former student, now an IT expert living in Sydney, won an impressive double, having lived in the most places, 20, and being the parent with the youngest child, 13. Simple surveys rarely provide important observations about the nature of society. They're nothing more than narrow windows, giving shadowy glimpses of things easily misinterpreted. As the evening evolved and as we started talking and asking each other about the details of our lives, a strange and inexpressible feeling began to overwhelm me. How can I explain it? I suddenly saw my fellow ex-students as a group of ordinary Australians who had, in their own way, done extraordinary things. They were, without exception, decent people whose lives had been characterised by unstated, indeed, in many instances, unconscious beliefs in personal honesty and integrity. They ranged from people who lived almost hermit-like existences in small shacks outside the town through to those who resided in multi-million dollar opulence on the shores of Sydney Harbour. Yet, because they had all once sat in small desks in the same room at a small country school, they laughed in the face of society's false divisions. I don't think this unique experience of unaffected Aussie egalitarianism offers any kind of template for a future utopia. It just makes me feel very lucky that I was, in my youth, part of an accidental experiment. Oh, isn't that nice? A story that, that, I don't know, a story that tells you what was, not necessarily what is, but certainly what could be. 
we'll, we'll be back with more after this, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think that it tells us that the public education experiment in Australia is a success and it's something worth fighting for. Well, it certainly reminds me a lot of the school I went to. Uh, I can, especially when he mentioned that uh, the kids had no concept of social divisions until the adults pointed it out. My um, my friends, my school was 50% Murray kids and I had no idea that they were Murray kids until I went to high school and suddenly we weren't, I wasn't allowed to go to their houses. And Murray kid is a Aboriginal kid. Yeah, well, that's what the kids yeah. call themselves Yeah, up there. And, um, yeah, it was the parents who, who divided us out and suddenly we weren't allowed to go to each other's houses anymore. Yeah, I mean, my experience was similar but not the same. I mean, I went to a state school. It was very multicultural. Um, it just didn't matter because um, at school people were people. You liked them or you didn't. Plenty I didn't like, but plenty I did too. Friends change. It's just the world, the colour of their skin you know, or where they're from. or That just wasn't an important thing. Mm. But the one thing I did notice, um, other me mates' houses, when I went home to their houses, they all smelled different to mine. <laughs> That's interesting. Different cooking, you know, yeah. different cultures because they were like there were Sri Lankans, there were Chinese people, there were... People from all around the world at my school when I went there. And you go home and their houses smell funny. And it occurred to me, hang on, my house must smell funny to that <laughs> full of cabbage and rice pudding. Yeah, you know, but, but that was it. Like, you sort of go back to school and you look at your, you look at your friend and you go, well, you come from a different place to me. I had, but it was exciting. It but was I had no idea, you know, and it's just back to normal, mm, you know, mm, back, mm. back to the playground, back mm. to school, doesn't matter. I remember you just reminded me our school used to um, have a culture day and um, you'd bring, everyone would bring dishes. Hmm. From, um, you know, so, you know, bring your favourite dish. So it wasn't like specifically talking about oh, a, what's cultural, culturally relevant to your family. Hmm. Like, so, you know, I could bring in me curried sausages, you know, yeah. but, um, but, you know, yeah. That's that was when we really got to explore the foods and stuff. Some of the amazing food that used to come in was, yeah. Yeah, it was food and smells are the beginning of that. So, but when you're in the school, none of that matters it's all actually it's a surprise like so, someone exciting. someone who's been your mate for three years like in school and you go home to his place and his mum cooks up this feast and you go what on earth is this oh. it's just like whoa yeah yeah it's just such a surprise and you know it doesn't make you look at him any different or anything like that but i, I remember having a birthday party and all your mates came out to my place and it did occur to me that my house probably smelled funny to them because <laughs> we, we were we were a mad mix yeah yeah no, I, what, what really appealed to me was that he went to school with the son of the shit collector. Yeah. <laughs> I went to school with the daughter of the dummy man, and she was one of the smartest girls and the prettiest girls in our class. <laughs> Didn't right. make any difference to us. Okay, we'll have a short break and we'll be right back. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in 
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Some Kefir scarves, of course, and behind, behind the bars. Yeah, look, we are the defenders of government schools, and every now and then we talk about issues to do with religion because religious organisations run schools in Australia because we say we have to. We wish we didn't have to talk about religion, but we do. Sometimes we talk about private enterprise and free market theologians wanting to take over various systems. And sometimes we just talk about educational issues um, that are across all the schools in Australia. And sometimes an educational issue pops up that's so mindlessly stupid (laughs) that it's worth bringing to attention for its mindlessness and its stupidity. And one of them is that in Australia we have this national test which is called NAPLAN. It goes through primary school and it pops up again in secondary school in year nine. Now, I don't know. I think a lot of listeners have been to school. Um, you might remember year nine. Chances are you didn't because your hormones had kicked in and it was this whole wasted year. Many, many schools planned for this. When children turn into adults, it's usually around about year eight and year nine that it happens. And it's a time when kids are transitioning from children into adults. And right in the middle of that, they're giving them a test. And it's a NAPLAN test. And various people are getting worried because this NAPLAN test given to your nine kids shows that they're not actually doing very well at all. And in comparisons with other countries, we are falling behind quite substantially. International comparisons. And in education, there is now a new paradigm. If a thing's worth doing, it's worth measuring well. Whether it's done well or not is a problem. So what's happened is that... More than 17% of Australian Year 9 students have actually failed the NAPLAN. They failed to meet the national minimum standards in 2019 for their NAPLAN tests. And results have actually stagnated um, across a whole range of domains. Now, what that means is that we, as a nation of Australia, are stuffing up our education system when it comes to measuring stuff. And so on the PISA studies, the International Comparison Studies, we are falling way, way, way behind. So... When that happens, um, politicians get involved in education. And when politicians get involved in education, it's never, ever a good sign. But just to give you some background, and I'm quoting now from an article on the Sydney Morning Herald by Pallavi Singhai, where 
um, they say that 10% of Year 7 students, 7% of Year 5 students, 3% of Year 3 students are also falling short of the writing minimum standard in a scenario that experts say is setting these pupils up for a massive handicap in life. Now, the Grattan Institute school education expert Peter Goss says the minimum standard is so low it should be raised or scrapped. So if kids aren't even meeting them, it's a real concern. He says that once people fall behind, typically it's very hard for them to catch up. So mm. someone is at the cusp of Year 7 at risk of falling behind in Year 9 unless they put in the work and get the right support. Now, results in NAPLAN tests in Australia have remained stagnant across m- most year groups for reading, numeracy, and they've got worse in grammar and punctuation um, and have improved slightly for spelling. Um, Dr Goss says it's really frustrating if results continue to stagnate, but we should think if education, like a super tanker, if it takes a huge amount of time and effort to change direction. Oh, just by the way, ladies and gentlemen, any time anyone says something is like a super tanker and takes a lot of time to turn around, um, they are full of rubbish. They are full of... That, that is just management speak for, I don't know. That is management speak for, well, it's not my problem. It's in the too hard basket. It's just, I, I, whenever anyone uses that metaphor, either, <laughs> either in print or in, I, oh, I remember once someone said it in front of me and, um, the person sitting next to me had promised they would punch anyone in the face who said that. <laughs> someone said it and he didn't punch him in the face and I just sat there looking at him for the rest of the meeting saying, Go on, go on, punch him, punch him. I'm sorry. Sorry, Dr. Goss, um, you've used the wrong metaphor there. I really find that objectionable. But that's not, we're, we're stating the problem. The, the problem is that Australian kids aren't doing very well on international comparison tests, and in Year 9, it's really bad. In fact, it's making us look bad. In fact, it's making us look so bad, it's making the government sit up and take notice. Now, we have a federal education minister. His name is Dan Tien, and he's got something to say. As soon as the politician's got something to say about this sort of stuff, you know you're in trouble. He says, Today's results show that since testing began in 2008, progress has been made in most areas, but there remains room to improve, particularly in the high school years. Okay, so what he's saying there is that, um, yeah, there's no problem, but there's a problem. Now, the results come after widespread reports of issues during online tests in May, including lags, problems logging on and difficulties um, in inputting answers for the poor kids in Year 9 because they've gone from a paper-based test to an online-based test. Mm. Now, David De Cavallo, the head of the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, which runs the NAPLAN, said it will include a note with the results that acknowledge the disruptions. But the agency and an independent advisory group have full confidence in this year's results um, being completely rubbish, <laughs> which, which is to say the kids aren't doing very well. Now, lots of other people have got stuff to say about this. Um, Education Union, Meredith Pierce has got something to say about it. The president of the Israel Primary Principles has got something to say about it. But Dan Tien has the answer. Dan Tien has come up with the answer to kids falling behind in that plan. And that is to scare the crap out of the kids. If you scare the children, then they'll do better on the test. So what he's suggesting is, and this is the Federal Education Minister... He's a friend with an institution that's known for abusing children. Well, he's saying is that the NAPLAN test at Year 9 will go on to that student's permanent record when it comes to applying for any jobs in the future. 
Oh, that's criminal. And that will mean that the Year 9 students... Remember, do you remember Year no. 9? Do you, no, remember, do you remember Year 9 when you, when you were a teenager and then you weren't a teenager and there was boys and there was they're girls or there was girls and there was boys and there was a gender fluid, whatever? Oh, it's just a mess. Dan Tian is saying, I'm going to make sure that the NAPLAN result is attached to that child as they go into the workplace four years later. He wants to damn what percentage of children in Australia? 17%. That's currently 17%. Because he doesn't want it to be 17%. He wants it all to go away. He says, I know. I'll scare the children. I'll say, this is going on your permanent record. Remember, this isn't year nine. This isn't school certificate, old-fashioned. This no. isn't year ten. This is when you, the, your second year of high school and you're still finding your feet. Well, second and a half. I mean, it depends if you turn up. I mean, I don't know. All <laughs> these kids might be turning up to every class. I'll tell you right now. Oh. Just what? That is the Federal Education Minister's solution to the problem of poor assessment. He'll scare the disadvantaged children into leaving school early. Absolutely. Because you can leave school at 16 years and 9 months, and so therefore some kids can leave school at the end of year 9 because they know that there's nothing for them there because they've been scared out of it because of a stupid little NAPLAN test. Now, the NAPLAN test, by the way, tests, tests all sorts of things. It tests numeracy, it tests literacy, it tests all that sort of stuff. I mean... If you're falling behind in one of those things because, you know, you don't much do like the counting stuff or I'm not so good at the writing stuff but I love to count, all of this goes on your, as you then apply for a job. So it'll be there. You apply for a job. Your potential for future employer will then get access to your year nine lap plan. How is he going to do this? What power has he got? He hasn't got it in the Constitution. Today. Oh, no, he's just saying, well, how do you improve kids' marks on tests? Scare them. And if you were in year nine and someone says something in four years' time bad is really going to happen unless you do something right now and you're 13 or 14 years old, you're going, who are you? What? I don't know. Go Collingwood um, or something. Or I'm going to make the plane some more Fortnite. At least there I've got credibility and I'm going to be a, I'm going to make millions doing online gaming. You know, they're year nine kids. Or the children. They are, in fact, children. In fact, the teachers know they're in loco parenti, which means that they are children. This is a politician's solution to an educational problem. Do you know what the problem with NAPLAN is? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything to start with. But do you know what? When it comes to NAP, in Finland, they don't have any tests and the kids do well at NAPLAN. It's not actually about the test. It's about the learning. Mm. Your problem is with your education system. Your problem is where you ghetto-wise children into various streams of schools and this based upon postcode because we know in Australia, and I'm sitting here looking at the My School website and I'm talking about great state schools later on. I'm Houston. If you have a school full of poor kids, by definition, the expectation is they're going to do worse on the NAPLAN test. They're going to do worse on every test because they've been put in a school with other kids just like them. And as far as I'm concerned, that is a disgusting fact of Australian educational life. And as a fact, we need to fight that simple fact in and of itself, which is highlighted by the beautiful story that Dale told us. Um, and, if, and if that story is brought into context now, mm. those kids in that school in Tumut did not have to put up with a NAPLAN test that goes onto their permanent record before they go off to make their millions and, and live their lives. Permanent record? It's just... Sorry, anyway, that, that, is, that is the solution presented by... I find that... So annoying, I have to calm even, down. And even if a child um, or a young person uh, has a criminal offence, 
uh, at that time, before they turn 18, yeah. there is a question of that not being on their record. Absolutely, yeah. Because they're um, children. It just goes to show that... What threat- kind of a man is this Dan T and what's his background? So oh, oh, even things like this. Oh, he wants to threaten children. That's the way you do things. Yeah. Maybe oh, he's one of the oh. sadists that uh, the oh, article was talking about. I got a good big when I was a child. Didn't do me any harm, said, said, said someone sometime. I don't know. What, from uh, the Christian Brothers? Oh look! I mean, now, 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 now we're getting into it. Dan, Dan, I apologise for saying that. If you're listening, mm-hmm. Education Minister for the Federal Government, Dan T, and I apologise for implying that you liked having a good beating at school and didn't, didn't, didn't do you any harm. I was, um, yeah, no, I, I unreservedly apologise for saying that. However, however, I would say that it is a stupid thing to do to threaten a 14-year-old yes. leading up to a test. Anyway, having said that, I'm going to calm down and listen to some music. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to Great State Schools. I found a great state state school. In fact, I know some graduates from this great state school. And it's a great state school in a weird little place off the southern shores of this great land of ours. It's on the South Island of Australia, a um, little place which is now called Tasmania. It used to be called Van Diemen's Land. And it's a little place called Hobart. And in Hobart, they do things differently. They really do. But they still have state schools down there. Um, Tasmania is the poorest state in Australia by, by income. They've got problems down there when it comes to attracting money. But they have state schools and they have an interesting tradition. In Hobart, they have secondary schools from years 7 to 10 and then everyone goes off to what they call matriculation colleges or senior colleges. 
And they divide them up on gender there. So they've got a girls' state high school and a boys' state high school. Now, the boys' state high school is in a place called Newtown, so that's called the Newtown High School. The girls' high school is an interesting one, and that's what we're going to focus on today because it's pretty great. Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Hmm. Ogilvy High School is really quite interesting. It has an extraordinarily good tradition in terms of educating girls in Tasmania. And it's the only 7-12 to 12 public high school in Tasmania. Now, it still has a school vision that goes way, way back, because a lot of stuff in Tasmania goes way, way back. And it actually has always been and continues to be about empowering girls to be successful. And Ogilvy was a, a premier, a Labor Party premier, hmm. and this school meant a lot to him, and uh, giving children uh, opportunities meant a lot to him. Yep. And the whole plot, basically the, the school itself it focuses on three things. It wants girls to be successful, it wants them to be skilled, and it wants them to be innovative. It doesn't want them to be safe, it doesn't want them to be known or noticed or socially acceptable. None of those things. It's about being successful, it's about girls being skilled and innovative. And the school mission is to be, to place the learn, learner first, to build the character of the girl and as she turns into a woman, and I'm sorry I'm using gendered pronouns, but um, it is a girl's school, so I'm going to talk about it in those ways. For those people that find that um, distracting or offensive, I'm sorry, but that's kind of what the school says about itself, and I think I'm bound uh, by honesty to tell you what the school thinks about itself. But it does actually, as a school, promote a growth mindset, and it's actually about continual improvement. It's not about winning this test or passing this test or getting the A. It's about actually learning and improving yourself. Now, the priorities to improve um, include things like challenging learning activities, doing difficult things on a frequent basis. That's part of what the school's about. It's not doing easy things um, so that you get a, a taste of success. It's about doing difficult things and failing first and failing fast and failing forward and then getting it right the next time because that's actually what a learning environment's about. And it's a learning environment with one gender together. It's a learning environment for girls. Now, the school began, as you say, Ogilvy, the Premier, back in 1937. So it's been around for a while. Um, and it had all sorts of strange things up until 1964 when it just became a public high school. It was a selective school for girls. It was, for, it was a co-educational school for a while, and then it was a commercial school. But then it just became a state high school for girls. There is literally a boys' school 500 metres down the road. Okay, and they do a lot of stuff together. So in terms of segregating them off in terms of gender, it is, it, it is true that that happens in this little place called Tasmania, in this little place called Hobart, but I can tell you right now the boys and the girls get along just fine because they're not actually that far away from each other. How does it do on NAPLAN? Well, interestingly enough, the NAPLAN results are just fine. Um, they're good. In fact, they're above average, certainly compared with similar students. Um, but at the moment at the Newtown High School... Ogilvy suffers from that which all schools in Australia suffer from, which is that, well, what can I say this? 80% of the kids come from the poorest half of families in Australia. So yeah, all of these things are true. And I'm sure if you were listening to me talk about Ogilvy being a great state school, you were saying, oh, this is, this is, this is some sort of middle-class aspirational ideal for our young girls you know, who live in comfortable circumstances. No. Now, this is a school for girls who come from almost exclusively low socioeconomic background. If we're honest in Australia, we, we say they come from poor families. 10% of the kids that go to this school are Indigenous Tasmanians. 16% of the kids that go to this school, young, young women that go to this school, come from a language background 
other than English. So in the world of you know Australian schooling where we have a semi-apartheid system between public and private, this is a school that would be considered in general to be a pocket of poverty, a pocket of educational disadvantage. But you know what? They're not. They are absolutely not. This is the exception that proves the rule. And I tell you what, when it comes to how much money it costs to educate these kids, remember like in the secondary school it costs, I don't know, between $13,000 and $15,000? $15,000 on the money? This is cheap. This is cheap. It's a lot cheaper than the private school down the road, I can tell you now. What, the friends? If, oh, the friends school. If you put in, uh, if you put in, well, the friends school is an interesting school in itself. But if you put in the money that both parents and the government put in together, this is cheap. It's bargain basement stuff. And it's turning out quite exceptional results. Even if you just look at the stupidity of NAPLAN, it's doing just fine against similar schools. Um, so I have to say that our great state school for the week this year is Ogilvy High School down there in the South Island of Australia in a little town called Hobart. Congratulations, Ogilvy. Spot on. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that he's actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. You have been listening to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. I think it's been a great program this week, especially to hear Dale's voice telling us some good news stories about from the past, about what state schools were and what they can be. Not what they are, unfortunately, which is why we have to fight the fight to defend government schools. If you are interested in what we're talking about, please contact us at www.adogs.info. Um, or indeed, you can ring up the station. If you've got an idea for a great state school you'd, you'd like to have prominence on our program, please give us a call on 9419-8377 during business hours and just leave the name of the school. Don't even have to leave your name. I'll do the research and it'll be on the air next week. But until... Next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I 
saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I did. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Joe, you're ten years dead.